Jesus appears literally out of nowhere in the Gospel of Mark. That is actually the very beginning of the text, by the way. There's no birth story. There's no baby born in a manger. Just these two guys in the wilderness at the banks of the Jordan River, and the heavens are torn asunder. He appears out of nowhere, the fulfillment of a thousand years of promise. And Jesus is on a very particular mission. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. And that announcement, that proclamation, gets some very excited and sets the teeth of others quite a bit on edge. He comes on a mission of reconciliation, and immediately that mission of reconciliation divides people sharply. Mark's Jesus is interested in peace, but as a colleague of mine reminded me on a Zoom call this week, the road to peace is very rarely a peaceful road. The road to peace is rarely a peaceful road. Truth and reconciliation belong together, right? That's what we say. We know that from the Bible. We know that from human history. We've seen that play out in places like South Africa. But truth and reconciliation are not so much companions to one another, I think, as they are kind of like a parent and a child. Truth begets reconciliation. But truth has to come first. Jesus illustrates that idea all throughout Mark's gospel, from his baptism, which we just heard about, to his death, to that terrifying moment at the empty tomb on Easter morning. He enters a world that is filled with pain and grief. And in many ways, Jesus' ministry on earth exacerbates that pain and that grief. Nobody who follows him finds their life made any easier. In just about every sense, their lives are, are harder. They're more difficult and more painful. Jesus reminds them, brother will betray brother to death. Parents will be divided from their children. He says, you will be hated by everyone, he says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, right? Following Jesus is a long game. It is not the work of a weekend. Truth comes first. That's always where Jesus starts. Real reconciliation comes not when we paper over our differences and pretend that they don't matter. Reconciliation starts when we risk saying the things that are, are hard for us to say, things that might hurt somebody else, things that run the risk of widening a divide or deepening a gap. And we live in a day of great divides and great gaps, and you don't need me to tell you about it. You all are living this stuff, right? I've talked to parishioners this week who are no longer speaking to members of their family because of the political and social divisions that are happening all around us. This is not just stuff that we read about in the news, right? This isn't just a, a mob of protesters storming the Capitol building. These are divisions that we experience in our homes, in our families, in our schools, in our, our workplaces, our cities, our, our churches. And they cause us pain. It hurts to be a divided people. And those wounds and that grief runs deep. The road to peace is never a peaceful road. After I published my letter this week to the congregation about the dangers of Christian nationalism and, and what it means to claim the name of Jesus in these times, I heard from a lot of you uh, in your various ways. And many of you are, are struggling with a lot of the same questions that I am struggling with right now, whether we agree or disagree about white supremacy, political divisions, how the words of the Bible ought to be interpreted. I think all of us are struggling in, with, these, with these deep divisions in our society. 
but more particularly with this question of what we can do about it. That's the question that I've been wrestling with, right? When you're faced with a, when you're faced with a real and present danger, what I wanna say is evil in our midst. How do you resist it? I said in my letter, and I, I believe it to be true, it is not enough for us to claim some kind of high moral ground and denounce evil and then dust off our hands and move on, right? Our resistance has got to be active and it has to be compassionate. And telling the truth, I believe, telling the truth is the first step, but it is only, <laughs> it is only a first step. So what are we gonna do about it? That's the question that many of you have posed on, on Facebook, what's the plan? I'm with you, Nathan, but, but you know, so what? A congregation of folks who agree with me does not make a speck of difference in an angry, nasty, bitter world. And if anything, actually, it runs the risk of creating a, a kind of a new orthodoxy, a, a new group think, a new us versus them. We're the righteous ones, and everybody out there who disagrees with us can shove it. That's never been the kind of preacher I've wanted to be. It's not the kind of leader I think I am called to be. I think we are called to be. So what do we do? phrased slightly differently, but maybe a little bit more germane to what this day asks of us. What would Jesus have us do in this moment? And I don't mean that question glibly with a WWJD bracelet or something like that. To my mind, that is actually the most important question for Christians to ask right now. What do we see modeled in the, the ministry of this guy, the way that he navigates conflict, the way that he confronts his enemies, which often, by my reading of the New Testament, is with strident, harsh, and angry words, right? There are no stories in sacred scripture about Jesus reconciling with the Pharisees. In John's gospel, he does have a kind of secret back-channel relationship with one of them who's a secret follower of his, but you know, there's no stories in, in scripture about like Jesus and Pontius Pilate sitting down for a beer at the end of the day, right? Jesus is a truth teller, it seems to me. Very rarely is he a fence mender. He almost never bends over backwards to accommodate the sensibilities of his enemies. Rather, he loves them. And love is a lot harder than accommodation. Jesus loves his enemies by being willing to engage them directly. And maybe that's, maybe that's our best starting point for asking what Jesus would have us do in moments like this one, moments when many of us are faced with hard choices about how we engage the violence and the division and sometimes the evil that we find in our midst. Jesus engages it, although that engagement is hard and it's complicated and eventually it leads to his death. And there are different ways of engaging people who differ from us, right? There are, are aggressive engagements. They often look like debate. And my sense is that people's minds are very rarely changed as a result of debate. I know a few of you, you know, fired off copies of my letter to the congregation to people in your life who you really felt needed to hear it. Maybe the very people whose belief system I was calling out and denouncing. And I gotta wonder how that, like, how'd that go for you? I suspect that you received some angry arguments in return, and that, you know, we know how that goes, right? It goes back and forth, arguing, debating, and maybe for some of us that is actually how we stay in relationship. I mean, heaven knows there are people who become friends through shouting at one another. I happen to know a few of you, and I love you just the same, even though you make me super anxious. But firing off angry emails, 
telling somebody off, attempting to argue somebody into a change of heart. I mean, has that ever, has that ever worked for you? Has debate ever been the means by which somebody's heart was changed? I mean, debate, debating this stuff is just no longer interesting to me, and I'm not gonna do it anymore. I'm so bored with email debates. I am really interested in seeing hearts changed. And I've never seen a heart changed by virtue of even the most finely crafted argument. What changes a heart, in my experience, is actually, at a certain level, none of my business, right? Only God can change a heart. That is hard-won wisdom, but I have found it to be the case in my own life and in the lives of the people that I love. Only God can change a heart. And that's actually the reason why I suspect that Jesus asks us, urges us, commands us, actually, to pray for our enemies. Praying for my enemies, actually naming the names of people I cannot stand, people I despise, people who make me angry or upset or afraid or whatever. Naming their names before God keeps me tethered to them in this weird and slightly woo-woo way. It makes me a little uncomfortable, but that is the way of prayer, right? It's the web of prayer. It's the acknowledgement that only God can change a heart, and often the heart that needs changing is mine. Prayer is how I engage in God's heart-changing project, and until my heart is soft and pliant enough to open to somebody who is different from me, I'm just caught down here firing off missiles. A young mom in this congregation shared a story with me this week about uh, an encounter that she had had, kind of in response to my letter. There's another parent at her kid's school who is, in her words, an anti-masker conspiracy theorist. And the two of them happen to pass one another on the street. Needless to say, this other parent is not wearing a mask. Trinity mom passes by, presumably to you know, nod and move on. But she hears another passerby shout at this other parent, wear a mask. And obviously, you know as well as I do, right, that doesn't go over well. It confirms everything that that other parent already believes about masks and the self-righteous Portlanders who wear them. So my mom, this mom, took a deep breath and she greeted this fellow parent, whom she knows from the, the pickup line from parent meetings. And there, in person, outdoors, one masked, one not, the stakes were like pretty high, right? And the conversation went in a really interesting direction. She wrote to me, we both found ways to establish common ground as well as to define the different issues that carry disproportionate weight for each of us. For me, the mom said, reducing the risk of viral transmission that I believe in. For him, this other parent, distrust of medical initiatives that are coming from a government that already lost his trust when they turned a blind eye to a corrupt tobacco industry and its influence on lung cancer research. So towards the end of the conversation, he said to her, I like talking with you. And then he said, I am always willing to learn more. I'm always willing to learn more. That's where I want to suggest that we start. Those of us who are, are struggling, honestly, with this question of what do we do in this moment of deep and staggering divisions, potentially violent divisions that are rending the fabric of our nation asunder, are we willing to learn more? In just a second, we're gonna commemorate this, this feast of Jesus' baptism by renewing our own baptismal vows. Those are the promises that we make in the Episcopal Church when we're 
baptized or made on our behalf if we're baptized as infants. And I was, I was not baptized in the Episcopal Church. My dad, Pastor Dave, and my grandmother, Pastor Sue, baptized me in one of those big church dunk tanks and in the evangelical church of my childhood. And I have to say, I have become incredibly thankful that my baptism comes out of that particular lineage because that evangelical lineage is a powerful one. And I think it's often a beautiful one and it's shaped just about everything I know about Jesus and the Bible and what it means to love those who differ from me. So these promises, this baptismal covenant as how we term it in the Episcopal Church, those were not the promises that I made on that day. We didn't do a baptismal covenant in the evangelical church of my childhood. I have come to claim these promises as my own anyway, because they've really come to shape my understanding of what it looks like to live a Christ-shaped life in this world. They're the promises that are at the, at the center of Trinity's core values, the respect, compassion, integrity, justice, inclusion, and stewardship that we say define our common life. And I give thanks every day for the work that was done to translate this baptismal covenant into those six values because that defines for this congregation our common ground, right? It does not matter to me all that much what you believe about God, what you believe about the Bible or who Jesus was. It doesn't really matter that much to me how you vote or how you think about what happened on Wednesday or what you're gonna do over the next 10 days or the next four years and beyond. A Trinity Cathedral is not an institution founded on core beliefs or core tenets, we're founded on values. Will you respect the dignity of every human being? Will you love your neighbor as yourself? Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? Will you strive for justice and peace among all people? Will you seek and serve Christ in all people? Will you sustain the gift of joy and wonder in all God's works? Saying yes to those promises is a hard ask, now more than ever. It asks us to work at setting aside our bitterness and our fear and our anger and our rage and doing the harder work of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And as this anti-vaxxer friend taught us this week, being willing to learn more. There is so much more for us to learn. There is so much more for us to do. And I, I can't tell you what God has in store for you to do. I cannot answer that question for you. I can stand up here and preach. I can give you some framing, some ideas to think about. I can lead you in renewing your baptismal covenant because I think any action that we take as individuals or as a congregation has got to start from that common ground, from those promises. But then I hand it over to you, the people of Trinity, the people who make this place tick, as scattered and dispersed as we are right now, the living out of these vows, the fleshing out of these promises, the question of how to translate these values into action, that is your work. That is your job. It's good and holy work. So do it faithfully. Ask the hard questions. And do not stop asking them, even when you think you've got an answer. Keep asking, keep learning, keep pushing, and keep engaging this broken, pain-filled world because that is what you have been called and commissioned by God to do. So may God bless you, my friends. May God bless you with strength and endurance 
as you walk this rocky, painful, often very violent road that leads to peace. <laughs>